Hello, grace and peace. We're taking Anarchy to Church here on the Anarchist Bible Study. I'm Josh, a.k.a. Iowan Cap. And I'm Jeff Park, a.k.a. Uh, keeping Will Smith's wife's name out of my mouth. You know, it was nice of them to uh, get into a fight so that um, everyone could remember that the Oscars were still a thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you think it was a put up job? Oh, no. It, I, oh, I don't care. Either. Irrelevant. Okay. <laughs> Whether it was okay. unt- intentional or not. Yeah. I just flipped yeah, the screen we were on because I really. Uh, Literally, but, I saw a church curmudgeon make an Oscars joke, um, and then I saw the Will Smith slap, and those are the reasons I knew the Oscars yeah. were on. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no one cares about this self-congratulatory garbage anymore, so the only interesting thing about it is if they get into a fight on stage. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, I wondered I wondered when I saw it, and then I saw a lot of tweets wondering too, I, I wondered when I saw it if it was a put-up job. Cause it's, it looked maybe a little like it, but I actually don't think that's what happened. I actually, <laughs> I don't, it seems, 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 seems like, seems like he didn't get the joke. Cause it, one of the reasons I thought it was a put up job is it looked like he was laughing at the joke, but I, I think that's just the, I know the cameras are on me. I'm going to laugh at this joke. Cause I can tell it's a joke. Then he got the joke. Then he gets up and slaps him. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's what I think that's what happened, and uh, and still so I no longer think it was a put up job. But for a second I did, just because I don't believe anything I see basically ever. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. um, but um, uh, but but anyway, mostly it serves as a healthy reminder to keep redacted out of your mouth. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have so many feelings, but I'm going to uh, keep them all locked well, I wondered, away. I wondered what I could bait you into saying on this topic. <laughs> keep them all locked away. <laughs> I'm just going to say, you know. Nope, not even going to say that. All right, so. Uh, <laughs> to hear the following pre-show banter, check out preambling number seven, Against the Bureaucracy, and preambling 7.5, Edcuation. Otherwise, you're welcome for cutting out the fat. All right. So, <clears throat> we are. <clears throat> my goodness. I just uh, my killed throat, your voice with that, didn't I? Yeah, my throat is, <laughs> is gone. Uh, we, <clears throat> we have, um, for some time now, we've been going through the Chicago statement on uh, inerrancy, on biblical inerrancy. Um, you can find that all in the modern. Uh, believe towards an evangelical upgrade is our is our playlist on on YouTube, and uh, if you engage in this um, by audio, you can find uh, <laughs> you can find the uh, the the episodes that we've gone through it there. And so we we went through uh, point by point of all of the articles, uh, along with um, some of uh, Senpai Sproul, rest in peace. Um, and uh, his commentary and, on it, and and then we've kind of come to. <clears throat> uh, it, it's interesting. It was an interesting coincidence. I would call it coincidence, but I know that that providentially the Lord is just giving us more material to work with. That we we started hearing uh, that the the Gospel Coalition has <laughs> begun kind of this process. They say of 
of um, saying, is there, does there need to be some revision or clarifying arguments for the, the gospel coalition uh, or no, for the Chicago statement? Um, They might have, I I haven't seen any more. In fact, I'm I'm kind of um, looking at the main page to see if someone else has come up with a, a, a proposal for, uh, for it, then I, I don't see anything. Um, uh, I see some articles that I'm going to be reading in a minute and, uh, but, but not on the show. Um, but, uh, but basically this, this art, this article by Derek, Br- uh, J Brown, um, we said, well, we had seen some reactions to it. And it seems like for the most part, we were seeing reactions to the title. This feels like a situation where they didn't read the article. They just read the title and kind of overreacted to it. Because so far, we actually are kind of okay with it. Even though we did disagree with one of his proposals, or at least an aspect of his proposal, um, because we read we read kind of his introduction, why he says there should be an update or a revision, and then read his his proposal for a revision of Article 4. And actually, the introduction where he says why it needs to be revised is the part we disagreed with most heartily. <laughs> right. Although, although uh, having read his, his, uh, what he explains as how he sees it happening says basically, um, okay. So he says, um, trying to find the, uh, an appropriate sentence to drop in on. Um, uh, let's see. Over the last few years, as I pondered this question, my research, writing, and academic engagement have led me to conclude that the best approach is not to wipe our slate clean. Instead, CSBI reframers should work with the document in its present form, modifying existing articles and proposing new ones where appropriate. Um, I'm, I'm not against that, but then he says, furthermore, because the articles of affirmation and denial serve as the heart of the document, it will be most fruitful to focus our energy there and then address the exposition and short statements after the articles are complete. I actually don't want them to touch the short statement. I'll be real. I, I kind of think that, that I just, I, I think that just don't touch it. Um, but, but anyway, <clears throat> and so if, if the, the model of what he says, and really I would say ultimately our problem with the first section isn't the concept of a revision in this, in this sense, but more my my pro our problems were a distrust of who they would put in charge of the revision. Like I don't trust kind of like um you know, like there there was a a proposal. I remember there's a proposal to revise the Westminster Confession in the PCUSA some years back. I feel like I I, I remember hearing of that. And it's like it's not that I'm against necessarily a modern updating the language revision. It's just like who's in charge of that project is a problem. Um, you know, like the, the, and not like we're on, not even like evangelicalism is on the level of PC USA, but, but that's sort of the idea is, is like, it's not that we're like having read his first article, even though we disagreed with the direction he was going, we kind of appreciated, 
the thought behind the direction he was going. Like, uh, not sorry, mm-hmm. not the direction he was going. We disagreed with certain aspects of his proposal, but we appreciated the direction he was going with the proposal. And the kind of disagreement we had is the kind of disagreement we hoped would be had in a um, in a council set on revising this. Um, and, and, and again, at the end of that, we said, even though we had some collegial disagreements, we don't see if we don't see the, uh, the reaction to this article as valid. And really, again, our, our only problem is we, if, if anyone other than Derek Brown is going to be on this council, like, do, do we know that they're going to be good? They're, they're going to take this in the right direction. Are they going to really honor the spirit of this? Or are they going to use it as an excuse to bring in modern revisions that would be out of line with what they were intending? Like, these are some of the questions that we have to ask. Um, But now we want to look at his additional article that he wants to put in. This is a brand new article that he would want to add to the existing 19. And um, I I want, we're, we're, again, we're going into this with an open mind. Um, Um... so it, we'll, we'll call it, we're going to call the balls and strikes either way. If it's good, uh, and I hope our last episode we proved that we can do that, that if it's good, we're going to affirm it. If it's bad, we're going to come against it. And if it's really bad, we're going to come uh, down hard on it. Um, and if it's in between, you know, whatever. So additional article, inerrancy and the validity of doctrinal development. Um, all right. Both before and after the CSBI was penned, one of the primary strategies utilized by non-inerrantists to undermine the inerrantist position is to make an appeal to the historic teaching of the church. Okay, okay. And that, okay, so I, I kind of already see where they're going on this one. Um, uh, that, that he's talking about that, that how, how um, a lot of the people, especially like the people who would uh, fancy themselves more conservative and yet against inerrancy, which again, I learned theology from a lot of these people. I went to seminary with a lot of this type of person who would fancy themselves more conservative and yet say, would say, we don't think that it is in line with what the, what the church has historically said about this. Um, And I mean, I would say most Mennonite brethren, uh, which denomination I was recently a part of <laughs> um, uh, most, most, I would say Mennonites in Canada generally would, would think of themselves as being highly conservative Christians. Right. Um, and, and yet not believing in inerrancy. And so they would be, yeah, they'd be, and, and, and they start with historical arguments too. Maybe not the same ones that he's going to, but, but historical arguments about how inerrancy wasn't really their fight. They were already their own branch off of the Reformation before all this. And, mm-hmm. and so it's not relevant to them is the basic mm-hmm. argument that, that, which of course that they would make about inerrancy. Maybe the first argument we'd have with them is get on our branch and then make it your fight. Yeah. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, you know, like I, I understand that. I understand that. Um, um, but also, though, I think that there a lot of these people would be people who would consider themselves part of the broadly Protestant tradition, even. Sure. So, um, yep. this next paragraph, 
The early church fathers, Aquinas, Luther, Calvin, Bavink, and Kuiper, they claim, largely a a mix, you know, like, but, but they're, it's a mix of scholars from throughout the ages, and yet clearly they're following the Reformed Protestant tradition, um, all held to a view of Scripture that was far different than what inerrantists advance today. Furthermore, not only was inerrancy a departure from the historic position of the church, it's a doctrine that owed its origin to a specific era of church history in which the Protestant response to the assault of higher criticism compelled scholars to form a theology of scripture according to modernistic rather than biblical categories. The result was a doctrine that established scripture as an epistemological first principle and therefore required an error-free text to retain its appropriate authority for Christians. You, yeah, uh, there's a lot of uh, technical language in that. And this is honestly what I appreciate about this article is it's a very technical article, which we want to use technical terms for doing this, but let's, let's clear up some of those technical terms. Um, so uh, epistemology is essentially the philosophical, the, the, the branch of philosophy that has to do with um, epistemos is, is about knowledge, how we know what we know. Is kind of that's that's what epistemology is is kind of um, digging down um, into how can we be confident or how do we know what we know? It's kind of the philosophy of knowledge, kind of broadly speaking. Um, when I when I say that I use the word um, prolegomena uh, a second ago, and in some ways that is uh, epistemology is a field of prolegomena. Uh, prolegomena literally means before we speak. So it's things that we say before we start talking about the matter. So setting the groundwork. And that's one of the things that theology has to do is set the groundwork. How do we, how do we understand knowledge? How do we understand our categories of knowledge? How do we, uh, how do we even stand confidently knowing anything? Um, and then, and so they says the result of this, this sort of higher, Form criticism, the assaults of higher criticism compelled scholars to form a theology of scripture according to modernistic rather than biblical categories. And this is something that we are ourselves saying we should always be careful about, uh, about um, letting modern philosophy over, uh, over, um, overrule biblical concerns. And so this. The idea is that, you know, they, they took, um, and this is actually the accusation that I would hear people say, um, is that, um, uh, even while they were, um, well, like this was the accusation that, that I heard, um, my, my theology professor who taught me post-liberalism, um, say is that ironically, the conservatives are, are acting liberal in their, yeah. opposing liberalism and this is what they would be saying this is what the accusation is um in fighting liberalism or which is another ner term for modernism modernism and liberalism are largely mean the same thing i know that doesn't mean that way today but historically that's what it was liberalism uh free of tradition modernism modern not traditional um so the that this would be that they said the accusation is they're using liberal or modernistic categories to fight against modernism or liberalism and again post-liberalism makes a big deal out of this because they would say we are the only ones who actually free ourselves of of liberalism this is where post 
liberalism is because we actually free ourselves of it and move on to something different, something without, you know, beyond foundationalism is a book um, that I read from, from kind of the post-liberal perspective. And that's really the idea is like, it's not that we need to find a new foundation. We need to get beyond the, the necessity of setting foundations. Cause that's a modernistic category. Um, so, so the result was a doctrine that established scripture as an epistemological first principle and therefore required an error-free text to retain its appropriate authority for Christians. And they would say, this is an in, uh, appropriate way to use scripture. Okay. So is this is all making sense. Hopefully, hopefully this is making sense for, for our, our, our listeners who, who aren't as philosophically bent as, uh, our buddy Patrick is, um, uh, but but that's that's kind of what they're getting at here. Um, any comment on this so far? Or uh, so far, most yeah. of my comments have have been making more jokes with Patrick in the chat. Um, no, I, okay. it, it, <laughs> <laughs> I I I I agree with with the introduction you're giving uh, okay. here, and certainly um, I I was trying to find support from their own mouths. Um, I thought I thought I remembered um, uh, this this book from 1925 from a modernist at University of North Carolina. Um, uh, I thought I remembered it, basically saying the exact thing that you um, who, who that? said, but I couldn't find I it quickly it. enough without because this book doesn't have an index. I couldn't find mm-hmm. it quickly enough to uh, to help you out there. But <laughs> what book is that? Uh, this is uh, "Can a Man Be a Christian Today." And today is kind of hyphenated, um, and uh, by I forget his first name, w- William Lewis Podiat, okay. who sorry was the president of Wake Forest College. This is uh, University of North Carolina Press, um, so oh, UNC sure. Chapel Hill. It's it's their press, yeah. but he was sorry he was the president of Wake Forest College, yeah. um, and uh, and gave this as the John Calvin McNair. Uh, uh, lectures at, I believe, I believe North University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. So anyway, um, and and so this is, and that's what the that's what the the modernists were trying to do. They're trying to rescue Christianity, make it workable for a modern age. Yeah, can a man be a Christian? Yeah, today. Yeah, um, is make it workable for a modern age. So he's yeah. He's, He's strongly saying yes. He thinks he's doing Christianity a favor uh-huh. by by modernizing it, getting it up with yeah. getting it up with the times. Um, yeah, and, it's a very old book, so I'm going to stop trying to handle it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and it's it's a uh, and 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 the accusation here is that we were playing the liberals' game. We played right into their right the 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 inerrancy con- uh, controversy or the inerrancy establishment was playing right into their hands and playing their game instead of playing our own game. Okay. While the argument for inerrancy does not finally rest upon historical precedent, it's an important, uh, important half sentence there. It's mm-hmm. necessary for inerrantists to refute the kind of historiography described above and bind their argument to the teaching of the church. The affirmation section of article uh, 16 makes a positive claim. The doctrine of inerrancy has strong historical precedent 
while the denial portion makes a parallel assertion, rejecting the idea that inerrancy is a recent doctrine concocted and crystallized during a time of rigorous debate in the 17th century over the reliability of the Bible and in response to the findings of historical critical scholarship. So, um, again, I wanted to bring this up earlier, but I wanted to give him a say because I was like, I'm pretty sure we dealt with this. But he's saying, I think he's going to go on to say that we want more. Another statement on this, something to firm it up. Seems to, seems that's the direction he's going. Right. right. Yes. Yeah. Seems seems like it. And I'll just point out that uh, if it crystallized during a time of rigorous debate in the 17th century, that's the Mennonites want it to be a little later than that. <laughs> yeah. Because if, if it happened in the 17th yeah. century, then they can't claim to not be part of that debate so much. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so 17th century, that would be, uh, see, so, I'm trying to remember. Se- centuries well, go back one. That'd be the 1600s. Yeah. Yeah. So we're talking, we're talking the great foundations. Yeah. Oh, we're talking about the confessions. Yeah. That, I mean, that's what he's saying at least that's not i'm not sure i've really heard it framed that way but um he's saying i don't know many people like i don't know many people who are going to want to like the, the 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 accusation i would see is that this during the 19th century i think he's misreading his the the opponent's argument um which i don't think the 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 chicago statement people were i think they weren't right. they were understanding it as uh, the accusation was that it, it was a 19th century or maybe 18th century. Like that would put it during the, um, uh, the, what, what, what do they call it? The scholastic period of reformed theology. You know, you've got kind of the, 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 the first reformed, you know, the 1500s, the 16th century is really where the, the reformation begins, you know, the late 16th century, the, the 17th century is really the, the foundation. The, the place where the Reformation started to flourish and, and really develop in its various tradition and the wings of its tradition. And the 18th century is usually considered, I think if I'm, I might be, I might be talking out my butt here, but uh, the 18th century, the thing is where they would consider the scholastic, where they, where they started taking these foundations of the Reformation and started getting high minded. And, and even the accusation there is that we were becoming the thing we hated like that's what I hear a lot is that you became the thing you hated. You were against the, the medievalists debating about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. And then you started having your own similar debates. And that's what they would say about like, say, you know, um, Turretin. The, yeah. Turretin and such, um, which, you know, I disagree. Some people but, would say that about Bavink, I guess. Yeah. Some people would say that about Bavink as well. Yeah. Um, but, but there was definitely be 19th century. 19th century is where this, this debate with historical critical scholarship was raging because the 19th century is where the historical critical school was having its heyday. Um, well, and, and because it came to this continent a little later, then you're, you're not talking about until the very early 20th century here, really. Yeah. Um, it, it took a little longer for it to uh, right. jump the ocean. And you would think, by the way, <laughs> that that um, we would we would go, huh? This this thing really flourished in Germany. Yeah. And then what happened in Germany? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> like you would think. I mean, no, no, absolutely. And, and that's not the 
that's not a be all end all argument. I'm just saying, I'm just saying that that sort of thing is is the reason for so many bigotries against good things that for once use it on a bad thing. (laughs) But but also, like, I think it's actually not a bad comparison at this point. Like, what is German liberalism except for a uh, a secularized Lutheranism? Sure. Like, the critical scholarship of saying there was no historical Moses, this was a four different redactors at different times in history, it wasn't really about predicting anything, it was about people putting their own views on that, and it was a way of minimizing the power of the Old Testament, and minimizing sure. the authority of the Old Testament. That's what they took out first. They took that out first and saying, and then there's sort of a... Uh, a spiritualizing of the new Testament that goes on. Well, what is that? That's very, that's a very Greek move against a very Hebrew move. The Hebrews were very embodied, uh, people. They like, they, they didn't have this sort of high platonic view of the difference in the soul and the, uh, the, the the body. And, and there's, they also, and so, and many of the things that were shed, in the redaction of the New Testament were the kind of Jewish roots of things. Well, really, we're just about the, the Christ of faith, the universalizing thing. And of course, what wasn't very universalistic? Judaism. It was yeah. very particularistic. And so they tried to take the, the particulars of Christianity and make it a more spiritualistic, universalistic, all things to all people, fatherhood of God, brotherhood of man sort of thing. And it did minimize to the point where you could say there really was a point at which like you could ask like, so what good is the Jewish people? They had a, uh, a, they had a, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, a brutal, um, God, a brutal God for a brutal people. Um, gosh, gosh I'm, I'm just blanking on the word. Um, old fashioned, but a much more uh, even old, oh. older. What's that? I, I didn't. I, I just was finally understanding the yeah. kind of word you're looking for, but I didn't yeah. get it. <laughs> um, gosh, I'm, I'm just blanking on the word here. But, but like, it, you know, okay. it's like a. Uh, a bronze age god for a bronze age people or a, yeah 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 that sort of thing it's like these were brutal people a brutal god and they were very particularistic very insular and they were trying to turn christianity into a much more universalistic good of all man you know in the same well, way that yeah. liberalism uh secularized post modern or post uh millennialism they were secularizing lutheranism in their strong great uh law versus grace distinction yeah um and and by secularizing as we said it with both post uh millennialism and with the grace law distinction when you secularize it you make a monster out of it um and, and that's what happened and it if it didn't if it wasn't inspired by a desire to uh to to demonize the jewish people um it certainly didn't help we could no longer a christian could no longer say of the jew these are this is our parent religion this is the religion 
that that led to ours and so while they might be misguided we, we wouldn't look at a jewish unbeliever a, uh, a a person a jewish person who has not come to faith in christ and view as paul did that as a tragedy we would view it as like in some ways it's like well they're just continuing in their like you say bronze age sort of ideas and they're not willing to embrace the universalisticness of christianity you can see how it's it if it doesn't cause it it certainly doesn't help yeah yeah well and i can't remember if it was in a discussion on air if it was a discussion with you but i I remember recently commenting i mean it's amazing how many times we have to excommunicate marcion right yeah (laughs) yeah it happened on air i believe Yep. Okay. That one keeps coming back. <laughs> and yeah. so over and over and over again, we're, we're, we will, we, we, we might as well get used to it. Um, we should, I, I don't think we should write new confessions, but we should, but we, uh, we should maybe, uh, but if we ever did, we should make sure to just, smash marcionism in the confessions uh because we need to make our peace with that one it's going to keep coming back it's well, yeah it's, it's always going to keep coming back this is it, why it teaching like, this is why teaching the old heresies are essentials because they right. keep coming back in new clothes you know it's right. like you know it's like like that those, those old cartoons where a person's trying to get into a club and it's like keep but they keep getting kicked out and putting on like you know glasses and and fake eyebrows or a fake nose in order to try and get in that's what happens the heresies keep coming back in uh and poorly disguised but if we don't know what they look like in the first place we're not ready for the disguise like gnosticism is making its way through our church today marcionism is coming back there's always sort of a poor uh trinitarian theology you know you like arianism that's that's all like what's jehovah's witnesses except arianism you know that's that's it keeps coming back in different clothes over and over and over again and we need to be prepared to take it on every single time exactly and and then i and then the 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 other issue there is that you pointed out is the the perfectibility of man um uh the uh so combine combine the the marcionism of of rejecting judaism with the secular temporal world power Mm-hmm. ability to perfect man yeah and is it any surprise mm-hmm. and and a a very sort of syncretism with germanic myth um that that mm-hmm. we can that we can um that we can go back to our pagan roots and and embrace um the pagan roots of our fatherland um and that's that's acceptable along with christianity these are all part of turn of the century german liberalism and then and then so 
really is it any surprise, right? Um, and we should point out that many, many, many German Lutherans, in fact, I would say the majority, I, I think if I recall correctly, the majority of German Lutherans um, did oppose the Third Reich. Um, and and the, the largest single block of, of outspoken opposition to the Third Reich was the dissenting Lutheran pastors. Yeah. So, so it, it's, but it wasn't the liberals. It was the conservatives. It was the cons theological conservatives. <laughs> it was the theological conservatives, not getting into the is Nazism liberal or conservative uh, politically mm -hmm. for the for the purposes of this conversation. I don't care. Um, but it's the it's it's the uh, theological conservatives who opposed it. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, but absolutely. this is a long rabbit trail from uh, yeah. our disagreeing with his chronology here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I thought it was valuable. Um, yeah, but, I, yeah, I think me too. <laughs> small, small things. Um, it, yeah, it's a small disagreement. Anyway, going on. Although the words inerrant or inerrancy were never used prior to the modern period, the idea of an error-free text has certainly been embraced by a large segment of the professing Christian church since the first century. Consider the work done by John Hanna and John Woodbridge, and he links there um, to a couple books um, that demonstrate this point. And the, the John Hanna book is called Inerrancy in the Church, which is kind of somewhat old by now. It's a 1984 book. Um, it's older than me. Um, so... Um, that doesn't mean it's bad. Just saying it's older. Um, and then of course, uh, biblical authority, another one that's older, uh, critique of Roger of the Rogers McKim proposal. Um, and, uh, yeah. And so those are the two books that it links to. Um, so he says a question that naturally emerges as one considers the rigor with which the doctrine of inerrancy was defended and defined in the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries. However, is why so much attention was given to the doctrine of the latter half of the second millennium. Such a recent uptake oh, up brackets to go with that rabbit trail. We just followed, um, I, amazing episode. I was just, my fingers were too slow to find it in time, but I should refer to it anyway. Um, the uh, episode 82 of the Anarcho Christian podcast, God is My Fuhrer. It's one of my favorite episodes ever of that show. It was so good going through, going through the descent, the Lutheran dissenters um, during, during the uh, Third Reich. So give that a listen. Um, it's from November 8th, 2021. It's Episode 82 was really good. Sorry. I just wanted to bracket that and put that in there because I, I was thinking he did a, such a great job with that that it would be a shame not to point people in that direction if they weren't already listening to him constantly. <laughs> right. Um, such a recent uptick in scholarship devoted to the doctrine of scripture generally and to inerrancy specifically does seem to give some weight to the claim that the idea of an error-free text, at least in his currently at least as it's currently defined, defined is a modern invention. Okay, so so he's saying we can see how it would look like. That's what's going on. 
that that it would how we can see how it would look like this is a modern invention because it's become so much more because there's been an uptick in it we've had to come up with a term for it you know um and i guess i i get i understand that um in the same way that maybe you could have accused the Chalcedonians of, of coming up with, uh, that is a new, it was new theology because we had to come up with a new term for it. But of course it wasn't, uh, it was an old theology. We just needed to come up with terms to define what it, what it means. Um, and then he goes on. So at this point, I suggest the CSBI could be strengthened, not by modifying the existing articles, but by including an additional article that asserts the legitimacy of doctrinal development and acknowledges the contemporary articulation of inerrancy as a detailed yet valid expression of the historic teaching of the church. The new article would read, and here's his proposal. We affirm that Theological formulations often receive greater nuance as we engage contemporary issues. We further affirm that the doctrine of inerrancy is a nuanced yet valid expression of the church's historic position on the nature of scripture. We deny that inerrancy rightly articulated is the misguided product of modernism, common sense realism, or any other external framework applied to scripture rather than the teaching of scripture itself. Okay, so we'll let him argue, and I think we'll we'll respond to his affirmation as he argues for each part. Um, because I'm 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 hoping he does exactly what he does before, but we'll see. Um, this new article is vital for it introduces a category the original CSBI neglected to include. Article sixteen simply denies that inerrancy is a novel doctrine cre- crafted relatively recently in church history. This is helpful and necessary, but it appears as a mere reaction unless it is set alongside a statement that legitimizes the idea that Christian doctrine over time as a result of encountering contemporary issues grows and matures in nuance and detail. Maybe it's just because the word's been used so poorly as of late, but I'm starting to hate the word nuance. (laughs) I don't know. I just, and then it seems like he's using it right. But I don't like it. Um, anyway, that that's just me. Um, as doctrines develop, however, they continue to retain fundamental aspects of the original teaching. As children retain the features that were faintly apparent in their prenatal state. Consider, for example, the advances that were made between the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Chalcedon uh, with regard to Christ's divine and human natures. Inerrancy is not a doctrinal invention. I, by the way, I really like that illustration. Um, not the prenatal thing, although that's good too. But um, the way uh, the development from Nicaea to Chalcedon. It's not that in, in Chalcedon they, they had to come up with something new to react to new problems. It was they had to clarify things that didn't need to be clarified at Nicaea. Um, the, the count, like if, if Nicaea is responding to people minimizing the divinity of Christ, Chalcedon is responding to people minimizing in many ways, the humanity of Christ. And so there needed to, as there were overreactions to the right formulation of doctrine, there needed to be setting up the boundaries. Um, this is why I think, um, we can forgive, especially the patriarch the patriarchal period, the church fathers period um, for 
their imperfect theology. Um, we got to remember that there were not sure. as many guardrails set at those times. They needed to start setting guardrails to keep um, biblical the to keep theology closer to the text. Um, so that's why I've never bought that whole first, you know, church fathers as supreme interpreters of the scripture thing. There, there's there's positives and negatives to look at. Like there's the first, sure the 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 early church. We're closer to the language of the the language of and the thoughts and worldview of the first church, and yet they had not set enough guardrails, as many guardrails as would be set throughout history of the church. This is why we affirm confessions, um, because those are guardrails keeping us to the biblical text. <coughs> um. So yeah. Um. So this, this is kind of what he's getting at with this affirmation. Inerrancy is not a doctrinal invention conceived by Christian apologists in order to retain intellectual credibility in the throes of modernism or to counter the arguments of higher criticism. It is an example of what happens when a historic doctrine confronts contemporary issues related directly to what the doctrine originally asserted. It was not until the latter half of the millennium that the doctrine of scripture received any concentrated attention. Concerning the significant developments of an evangelical doctrine of scripture in the 19th century, D.A. Carson comments, and this is, he cites the, it, it's in um, uh, his review of Stanley Grenz, uh, Grenz's Renewing the Center. Stan Grenz, who was once a professor at the seminary that I got my MDiv from. Um, oh, yeah. They were very proud of him. Um, the more I learned about him, the less proud I was of him. Hmm. Uh but in, in his, it's, it's an article and he cites, he um, goes to SB, the SBL, SBJT, I don't know what that is. But anyway, um, D.A. Carson comments, the Princetonians had more to say about scripture than some of their forebears, precisely because that was one of the most common points of attack from the rising liberalism of the especially European university world. But I suspect that even-handed reading of the evidence would not find Hodge or Warfield adopting a stance on scripture greatly different from that of Augustine or Calvin, so far as its role is concerned in the structure of Christian theology. The reason for this rather recent development is because it's only of late that epistemological, biblical, and theological developments have necessitated the concerted interaction with the issues with issues related to the nature of scripture. The view that scripture is entirely truthful and without error in all that it affirms was largely assumed by the bulk of the church until after the reformation. So there was no need to argue strenuously for it. Uh, James Bannerman made this very point over a century and a half ago in his volume, inspiration, the infallible truth and divine authority of the Holy scripture. Um, I, I like the citations because it shows that he's very well read in this area. Um, the question of the authority and infallibility of scripture did not, however, pass through this process in brackets of polemical scrutiny until many centuries afterwards. There are no definitions and limitations of the doctrine on one side and another elaborately drawn out and reduced to systematic form as if armed on every side to repel assault or fortified around to prevent controversy or misunderstanding. The belief of the early church in an infallible Bible was 
too simple to require to be fenced about with safeguard of explanations and too unanimous to need support from argument. We should therefore expect a stronger and more detailed emphasis on the error-free nature of scriptures when, in the 19th century, scholars were presenting sophisticated arguments that under undermined the truthfulness of major theological affirmations and large swaths of the biblical narrative. Theological and historical developments required a more thorough response than was previously necessary. This new article establishes a category within which to understand both the doctrine of inerrancy and the CSBI as natural developments in the course of church history. Okay, so understanding his argument, do you have anything you want to say about that? Yeah. Um, so, i i can I can appreciate it. I'm not sure. Like, I'm 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 impressed at the work he's done on this. Yes. Um. I I think I think the criticism I, I I'm strengthened in my view that the criticisms we saw of this yes. were going off. Half cocked on the time. Yes. Um, I, I'm not convinced it's necessary. Okay. And I do think the biggest concern is still that rogue constitutional convention <laughs> problem that we talked about last time. Um, yeah. But, but because I'm not sure it's necessary because, first of all, I don't I don't think the doctrine is new. Yeah. I don't think there's basically anything new about it. And he agrees, Brown mm. agrees, that <clears throat> that it's not new. Um, it's not new in the way it's applied. It's not new in yeah. the way it's the, the only thing that's new is the word. Yeah. Um and and I guess well, I, I guess, yeah, I mean, so we um we read the Sproul commentary where, um, where he actually talks about how, yeah, like uh, he, he actually basically gives this defense, yeah, in the commentary. So yeah, um, so explaining yeah, biblical I, inerrancy, which we'll cite right. in, put in our comment uh, description, and and so so yeah, I'm just I'm not confident. I'm not, I, I don't, I don't see any, well, hang on. I don't think I see any problem <laughs> with this, with this added article, this added affirmation. That's not. But I also don't see, I don't see that it's necessarily solving a, a problem that, um yeah i guess it's a it's a solution in search of a problem to some extent because i don't think this is a deficiency with the original statement um i don't think i don't think anyone i don't think the arguments against it against the uh Chicago statement are made in good faith so i don't think <laughs> I don't I don't think pretending they are and that if they just understood this one point, mm -hmm. so if we included another affirmation of denial to yeah. to address this other point, um 
and thereby set the precedent that this is a moving target and we're going to keep adjusting yeah. this statement. I, yeah. I, yeah, I'm not a, I'm not a, so even if this, these two things were the only things that were changed, mm-hmm. I'm not confident that the end result is better. That's, yeah. I guess, that's, I guess my biggest problem here. It's not actually with, with what he's saying. I think what he's yeah. saying is, is, uh, is really interesting. And I think I've benefited from reading it, but yeah, I'm not sure it's actually necessary to rewrite it <laughs> or again, to, to amend. As you say, my worry is that the opportunity to edit is a whole they will drive a truck through people who are not good faith yeah. engagers. Um, and, and what are the institutions that we would look to for this? I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to see a credible, trustworthy ex- institution to, to take on the project, you know, like that not only has intellectual capability to take it on and good faith and are in fact, actually trying to, build on the legacy of Sproul. For one thing, I think we need more Presbyterians involved. I know I right now just gave uh, so much ammo to our Presbyterian friends who are like, see, he said that Presbyterians are better. No, I, I, I have a problem with, okay, so Baptist church has a culture problem. We do. An anti-intellectual culture problem. This is not an argument against our position. It's, an, it's a problem with our culture. Has been the case ever since the uh, Second Great Awakening. Again, almost all of the evils of the American church, I, c- I can track back to the Second Great Awakening. Uh, uh, if you just give me enough time, I'll get there. Uh, but I don't but know if I, revival and per- revivalism is on this shelf, but I could, <laughs> I could go for a third. I could go for a third, pull a book off the But I, I think... Book. There, I, I distrust a so a solo Baptist convention of this sort of thing, and I feel like that's what we would get, either Baptist or Baptist light. You know, there's like Presbyterians who are Baptist light. You know, you know what I'm talking about. You know exactly. Uh, you're talking about the PCA, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I really think that there needs to be a broader theological consensus of bringing together in the same way that there, it took a broader theological consensus coming together for the original Chicago statement. Um, that's why I wish, man, I just, I wish Sproul was still alive, not for his sake. He's bless him. He finally is enjoying the, the fruit of his labor. Uh, but, but, uh, <laughs> if I just the witch wish of indoor is listening. <laughs> leave him in peace we don't need him but <laughs> you know who i would trust to take on this project here's the only way i would endorse this project if ligonier ministries took it on oh that would be interesting if ligonier ministries decided they were going to head up they are really good at bringing people together like they are a presbyterian to the hilt organization but they they will bring a baptist brother alongside and they always find the best Baptists. They always bring together the, the best Anglicans, the best of other traditions. They are, I would trust Ligonier ministries with this project. So if they decide they're going to do an Orlando statement, uh, or the, the Orlando update of the Chicago statement, if that's what they decide to do, um, then 
I'm on board. Send Derek Brown. Send him in. I think he would be a good member of that council. This man, yeah. I think I have, a, I appreciate, I've appreciated this article as you have, or this, this reading. I, I haven't agreed with everything he said. Um, and I would say I, I might disagree with you that I think this actually, I don't, I think this might be a good addition to the Chicago statement. This, okay. this affirmation in particular, I, I, I don't, I would quibble with the language and that's why you have a council. Sure. That's why you have a council. Someone over here is going to say, you know, someone's going to drive a truck through the word nuance. And so we need to pick a different word or we need to, to say that a little differently. Or we need in our exposition to be very clear what we mean by this word. Um, but I think it's I think I think he's right that a positive statement on the way the church develops doctrine in response to controversy is a good statement. I think it is something I think not only is it a good statement for this topic, I think it's a good thing to have as a statement. I think that's going to guard future controversies from going off the rails to say these are the rules that we engage in when we formulate doctrinal statements in response to controversy. We need to stay grounded in the tradition and in this text, and we're not building something new. You don't get to create something new just because you see a problem in the field. We have to. We are developing language to shore up what is already there, and and I think. That's a good, I think that's, that's a good thing to do. Cause I think that's something that I, I sometimes, I think, uh, in a systematic theology course, that's one thing that I would want to take on as a conversation that would be part of my prolegomena is to say, uh, my prolegomena is to say, you know, there's, there's sort of different tiers to theological, um, articulation that we have to acknowledge. There's sort of primary first tier uh, by which I'm not doing, talking about, um, what's sometimes called doctrinal, um, uh, oh shoot. What's it called? Um, triage, doctrinal triage hearing. I mean, um, in the sense of there's, there's different, um, we, we've just been subtweeting the Ortlands for like the last 30 minutes. It's amazing. Anyway, you know, it's a, <laughs> I don't disagree with the phrase triage. I don't actually disagree. I, I don't, with the phrase I don't triage. actually disagree. I, I don't actually disagree with that book so much from Gavin Ortland. I just, yeah, I, 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 I disagree with how he has used it since. Not yeah. not actually the book. The book was useful. I, I haven't read the book. Um, I'll okay. just say I, I've heard it through other people. So I, I'm not even talking about uh, I'm not talking about tiering in the sense of triage. I think I think that's useful a useful way of formulating, but that's not what I'm saying. Um, there's different um, tiers in theological formulation. You've got kind of primary first tier, which is like sure. textual statements justification uh by grace through faith that salvation is you know received by grace alone through faith alone in christ alone. these sort of things that it is we are saved by faith by through christ and christ alone um propitiation um those are first tier issues directly from the text citations and then you've got kind of second tier of uh, formulations and again this is where it should be clear my tiering is is very different from triaging because second tier would be uh, conclusions like you know basically you got scriptural statements directly stated and what is necessarily contained as the 1689 says it or i like to say logically deduced from scripture which would be trinity 
So there'd be second tier theological formulation, first tier triage, right? And so, so obviously my tiering is differently at this point, but, but that's, to show like there they are different tiers the the word trinity is not stated in the text but it is logically deduced from the text sure and then you've got kind of third tier which is about shoring up first and second tier that would be where where um the the handmaiden of theology philosophy comes in and helps us to formulate um to formulate terminology and doctrinal specificity to clarify like that's where we use the words imp- the words the words imputation come in like this is not in the text it is logically deduced but it's not but it's it, we're we're bringing that word out specifically to shore up um what is logically deduced and what is directly stated. Um, this is where I think statements like inerrancy and infallibility and sufficiency and perspicuity. These are, these are philosophical terms used to shore up. And, and when we get to that third tier, we want to, we want to affirm both the necessity of it and um, the fact that we walk in this tier with fear and trembling. <laughs> <laughs> that when every anytime we start using external words to define internal doctrine, we need to be very careful. We need to make sure that we never go further than we need to go. Yeah. But what if so? What if could I interest you in uh, righteousness not being imputed or infused, but encoded on the blockchain, which you can. <laughs> <laughs> this joke sponsored by buymeacoffee.com slash flyover where for one dollar a month you can see the exact joke that we're talking about in our discord channel <laughs> uh, the, that wasn't in discord that was on twitter oh that was on twitter that was on twitter but, oh my god i'll put right. it on i'll put it on discord <laughs> yeah to not make lies out of us <laughs> oh my goodness yeah uh, i love that that tweet uh indulgences you just invented indulgences <laughs> oh boy Uh, anyway um but yeah i think so so um there is a concluding section of this article it's just two paragraphs um i can read them really quickly the csbi has enjoyed over four decades of usefulness due to the care of the care the original framers took to articulate the doctrine of inerrancy within a broader doctrine of scripture in light of contemporary challenges to inerrancy, however, it is time to exercise that same care and reformulate the CSBI to strengthen it for future generations. So, um, we've kind of talked about this before, but I would say, again, this article is really good. It's a really good article, and I would trust this in the hands of Ligonier Ministries. If they were to bring together scholars, I think they would do a good job. I think they would do a fair job bringing together scholars of the inheritance traditions to, to take and expand upon CSBI where necessary. One, as we've said before, and we're not going to belabor the point anymore because we don't have to, we don't trust who would be on this council. The state of evangelical intelligentsia is not good. And, and I would not trust who we have, who would end up on this council Two, um, the second thing is, I would rather see a new 
confession. As I, I'm going to stand by what I said before. I would rather see new work on the old confession or on the old uh, statement than see a new statement or ado- adjusting the statement. I would rather see an, an updated statement like, uh, uh, like again, like the Orlando addendum to the Chicago statement of biblical inerrancy or something like that. Like some sure. kind of uh, an additional statement or, um, or I would rather see guys like Derek Brown continue to expound upon it in their writings, like writing new commentaries on the Chicago statement. I think I'd like to see that more and people kind of expanding upon that in that way. Um, like, you know, you, you've got like, I think there's uh I think there's better ways to do this. All, all that to say, I think, I think I would rather leave the Chicago statement as it is and develop new statements. Um, additional statements third issue and this is the issue that we really haven't talked about yet but i think this might be kind of my real ultimate reason and i guess we've kind of touched on it a little bit my real ultimate reason why i don't think it's a good idea to update the chicago statement i don't think that's the battle of our generation Mm. in the church within the church the reason why Chicago statement on biblical inerrancy was necessary is because that was the issue within the church. Enough time has passed that those who reject inerrancy, I think we can just walk away from them. We've done it. We've done the debates. We've done the defenses. We've written up the statement, a great statement. We've, we've written commentaries and expound expounded upon it in great ways by great scholars. There comes a point at which you can say, you know what? Like where the the Dort counts the the canons of Dort have been written. Preachers have expounded on the canons of Dort. There are books written about the canons of Dort. At some point, we have to say, if you don't affirm the canons of Dort, you belong to a different body. You know, like you, we're just gonna have to go our separate ways. You know, we are Calvinists. You are Arminians. And I think there's this, I think we've gotten to that point in inerrancy to say, like, we don't need new statements. The statement we have, let's let that stand as the border between us and the non-inerrantists, and let's deal with the actual issue within the church today, which I think is sufficiency. We need to write a Chicago statement of the sufficiency of the scriptures. I think sufficiency is the issue of our day. Or, or even better, we need to drive our people back to a scholarly approach to the scriptures. Like, I sometimes feel like I'm the crazy one. Like, I'm the one looking around being like, we need to shore up our doctrine. And everybody else is like, yeah, but it's really about people. Like, sure, but if you don't have anything to say to the people, then what are you doing? Like, what what good is, is saying I love the people but I don't have a truth to love them with? It's kind of like saying, speak the truth in love. Remember to speak the truth in love. If you don't have truth to say, what are you going to say to them? Like, the pastor-scholar needs to be reclaimed, and, it, and, and the quality of the pastor-scholar needs to be raised. And I think that's not going to come from tearing down the old, but building on it. This is where, again, if we all would get back to the confessions of, of our, and the, and the great Christian tradition, and, and that includes the Chicago statements, but not just on inerrancy. Like, that's, that's one of the things is like, 
Again, we keep right. talking about inerrancy, but they wrote two more statements. Yeah. And they wrote an exposition on the statement. And these aren't being discussed. Like, this is part of it all. And also, like, at no point, does, like, he, he, he gestures at the historical reform confessions, but, like, we could say, like, there's so much in there that would shore us up from this kind of failures, these, these kinds of things. Um, I don't think you can affirm the Westminster 1689 London Baptist Confessions on chapter one and walk away and become right. an anti-inerrantist. I think you read those chapters, you're going to walk away and say, and then someone comes up to you and says, oh yeah, we have a new term in defense of this against the liberals. It's called, it's inerrancy. You would take that word, you would take that term in your hands. You look at it and you say, yes, this looks like what I saw in here. Like, I don't, I don't think you would in any way feel, but also there's other things in that first chapter that I think we've lost. Like, like I do think we've lost the deduction from scripture that we believe that things can be deduced from scripture that are valuable. That second tier has been lost in many ways. <clears throat> the modern evangelical church wants to cite scripture and like, uh, like scripture and just the words themselves and not get into well, what is logically deduced. We'll affirm like some of the things that are so clear that we can't get around them, like the Trinity. Um, but we will fail to see that there are logical deductions that are necessary from scripture about how to like ecclesiology, like about uh, um, the way we build a church that we don't have to learn from the modern business world. We have all we need in scripture right. Right. and, and um, or even like the, the way we structure our, our worship service. We don't need to learn from the modern entertainment industrial complex. We can, we find everything we need in scripture as a deduction from scripture as a logical deduction from scripture. And I think, and, and really the big thing that I like to, the reason I like emphasizing that logical deduction is not just because there are specific doctrines we need to logically deduce, but to show and remind people that you need to use your brain when you're reading this thing. You don't just right. cite the passage and walk away and good for you. Like you need to inhabit or, or let that scripture inhabit your brain and, and turn it over in your mind and not just like memorize it in the sense that you can bring it up on and, and get your badge or your, your prize from Awana, but that you are letting that, that scripture tumble around your brain and reshape the way you think. And and that's why I think logical deduction is so important. And then also like philosophy, third tier, like so evangelicals have, have such a anti-intellectual view of that third tier of, of taking on uh, philosophical discussions and seeing how they shore up the biblical truth and why they're so necessary that I think this is where evangelicalism, the, the problem with the evangelicalism of today and why we have an evangelical downgrade is that the pastor scholar is gone. We see right. no use for them anymore. Mm. We want a psychologist, a counselor, a uh, sociologist, someone who's got business savvy, a leader. We want leadership models. We, we don't want, what do we call What do we call the place where your pastor sits and waits and works and has their meetings? We call it an office. 
office typically. Yeah. It used to be called a study. A study. We used to have a study for pastors. The pastor is in his study. And by the way, that's a, pl that's a way of saying he does. He's not to be disturbed because he's studying Right. So that he has something to say to you when he comes and talks to you. The pastor's in his study means let him let him study. The pastor's in his office says, come on in. He's on the job. Because his job is is to talk to you. And and like uh this is where I can quote Senpai Piper in, in the best way. We've been coming down, we've been coming hard on him for a while, so I wanna I wanna bring up what he said good. He once in his book, um, brothers, we are not professionals, um, which by the way, is only like one chapter. The rest of the book is like just sort of nuggets of pastoral wisdom, which by the, which also great pastoral wisdom. Cause in one of the chapters, he talks about how in order for a pastor to love his congregation, he needs to have times where he avoids them. Like he has, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of. Uh, how do I say it? I'm kind of uh, paraphrasing him, but essentially that's what it comes down to. It's like there needs to be times when the pastor hides from his congregation so he can better serve them. Hides from his congregation to study. Hides from his congregation to read. Hides from his congregation, and not just study for the sermon, but study for the sake of his soul. And 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 he advocates long periods of time and where they can uh, stretch their mind, stretch their heart search their soul spend time memorizing scripture studying old texts praying so that when they come and talk to their people they have something to say i i used to respond i you know in seminary that i would always they would always say they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care they don't know how much care how much you know till they know how much you care and then i went out into the world and they i heard the same thing they don't care how much you know till they know how much you care they don't care how much you know till they know how much you care and then i always would respond though at which point they will care what you know right <laughs> like you know like you you can't just say like they don't care how much you know till they know how much you care is is an excuse to avoid the books like no that is a on the way teaching yes you find ways to show how much you care for them you laugh at their jokes you involve yourself in their life you ask questions about their life and you study so that once they ask you what you know you have something to say there are so many dumbfounded looks of people who inhabit that phrase they don't care how much you know till they know how much you care of people who have poured their lives into these people. And of course we brought up in a previous episode that, that amazing scene from ER, which Patrick brought up and, and then um, in, in the, in the chat, but um, that amazing scene, which I think there are so many, I, I am sure there's so many pastors in this world who have by inhabiting that um, modern psychological view of the pastor as a counselor, as a caregiver, as a as a as a sociologist as a social worker uh, a theological social worker that have you know poured their heart into someone and then they ask them a hard question what do they have you've got nothing you've got nothing you've got thin thin skin deep solutions to heart deep problems to intellectually deep problems i 
I've resisted for <laughs> most of my life. <laughs> I've spent most of my life resisting any sort of pastoral service because my dad was a pastor. Um, and, um, and therefore I wasn't going to, right? <laughs> like this, it was just that simple. <laughs> it's like, my dad was a pastor. I wasn't going to do what my dad did. It was just largely simple rebellion. Um, <laughs> um, largely, largely taking the minutest flaws of my father and projecting them into giant flaws and saying, I never wanted to be like him. Uh, it, it's just, it's just, just simple fifth commandment breaking stuff, uh, mostly, but, um, but, uh, and, and I, and I'm also convinced that because of some of the experiences my dad had in the ministry, if, um, that's how I know I'm a believer that I was still a Christian after I watched that happen. <laughs> because if I was not a believer, I would not have pretended to be one after seeing that. Um, so for most of my life, I, I, I spent running away from that. Um, when I suddenly ate to be a pastor, <laughs> um, was not from preaching, which I really enjoy. And and I can't get enough of, and I want to do it again as soon as I've woken up from the nap after having done it. Um, <laughs> um, um, but that's not what made me want to be a pastor. Um, what really made me want to be a pastor is I got a call. Um, husband is with his wife in the hospital. Um, no one can make it there tonight. He's not doing well. He's, he's not holding it together. He doesn't know if his wife is going to die. Um, someone needs to go, <laughs> uh, be with him. And I realized at that moment that just rattling off theology was obviously not going to be enough but that uh, a decade of uh and well and really intensely two years of knowing and loving a theology of suffering had prepared me to walk in and to have something to say that was was going to be meaningful in the deepest sense at um uh, at this at this time and I've continued to have those experiences where where the 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 Lord has placed me in the car, in the hospital room, in wherever, when, when someone is going through immense suffering, 
and um and i i'm i'm confident that <laughs> that is why god has let me suffer even at the reasonably minimal level that he has um is uh um but he but i keep finding myself in situations like this and be being able to without having to deliver a thesis but be able to at a childlike level because that's when that's what we can handle when we're in the depths of despair like this at a childlike level express the robust sovereignty of god and and the deep meaningfulness of suffering in situations like this that's what made me ache to be a pastor <laughs> um, and and so it is it 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 is the you have to there is a level at which you have to know and you have to fight to know <laughs> so that you can care i could not have cared for any of these people if i hadn't known <laughs> first um yeah because i wouldn't have had anything meaningful to say yeah. to make their suffering seem meaningful mm -hmm. uh, and part of it is having suffered myself part of it is having read edwards <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> right and having and 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 having grappled with the scriptures mm -hmm. and 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 having um yeah and and so i think uh and i think I, I i'm pretty sure we did like a whole evangelical downgrade episode on this called um they care how much you know <laughs> yeah um uh but but um but yeah i think um I, I think that that I really feel that that's a statement that just needs to be retired because um, because it's it it obscures more than it reveals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I agree, and I think. Um, Someone knows when you're giving in moments of in moments where times where things are the hardest, that is when it is the worst time to give a pat answer. Yes. To give some kind of a bumper sticker response. Like when everything is falling apart, they know people can sense it. When there's nothing behind your words except for just quoting a bumper sticker. Even in the moments where you are giving simple care, people can tell when there is a deep theology behind it. You know, like it's... You, 
I don't know any other way to explain it, but they can hear the echoes. Right? Like, they can hear the echoes when you give... Like, people know the difference between someone who has sort of a semi-fatalistic view of like, well, things work out for the best, you know, and then they say, well, uh, God turns all things to good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Like the very simple way of saying it, like just people know the difference between someone saying it like that with no sense of depth to it. And the difference between someone who has grappled with the sovereignty of God, particularly the sovereignty of God and suffering, the, 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 um, Sovereignty of God in turning suffering to good and, and have the whole structure of Romans 8. And when someone like that comes into that same situation and quotes the same exact verse, they can hear the echoes when someone says, for God turns all things to good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. There's echoes of the depth in that. So you can have someone quoting the same exact verse, but because there's this depth of a theology of suffering and a theology of, of sovereignty and a theology of the love of God, which is more than just God loves everybody. No, God loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you, set his saving love on you from before the foundation of the world, pursued you with the gospel call and the effectual call through his Holy spirit seeking you. And so you know how much he loves you. And, and so I know that he will turn all things for your good. We don't see it now, but we know that God loves you and has an intention for this to work out for your ultimate glory and salvation. For this light, momentary affliction is not worth comparing with the glory that with the weight of glory that is to be revealed. Eternal weight of glory. Like this, it's not worth comparing. As we look not to that which is seen, but to that which is unseen. There's uh there's echoes of depths right. that, that come in those moments that that make all of that study, even though I'm not studying Turretin in that moment, or I'm not quoting Turretin in that moment. I'm not quoting Bovink. I'm not pulling out any of my Calvin quotes. I'm not pulling out any of my, I'm not quoting the Westminster confession of faith or the, or the Chicago statement of biblical inerrancy, but all of that wells up in that moment to create the depth so that when you speak into that moment, there is the echoes. And then of course, Beyond the caring, a pastor isn't just a caregiver. That's not all they are. You are not a, just a counselor. You are not just a psychologist. Your job isn't just to give kind care and sometimes tough love. That's not your job. Your job is also to be a pugilist. Your job is to be Theoden, taking the field with your with your soldiers and fighting shoulder to shoulder with them. And you you better not be the weakest person in the bunch. This is all a reference to uh, preambling episode seven, uh, by the way. Um, but 
where we talked about Theoden. Um, but that's what you when the king is in the field, he better not be the weak link. The king better be the one swinging his sword the hardest. And so a pastor, when they go to war, they have to fight harder. You just don't see what you know. What I'm convinced by was this is this is it's funny. It happens again and again that people who are accused of bullies for what they say publicly are often the most caring pastors in their congregation. You find them mm-hmm. and you ask their sheep what they think of their shepherd. They always think of him as a caring, kind guy. And this thing keeps happening again and again, right? Where we hear these guys who speak so calmly and kindly and compassionately. Oh, how compassionately could Bill, uh, whatever, Bill Hybels speak? How compassionately could James McDonald speak when they got into the pulpit? They could speak so kindly. And it turns out they were bullies behind closed doors. Yeah. And, and, um, uh, and this week, it's the Hillsong guys. There have been two Hillsong guys this week who've... Uh, Unsurprising. And, and yeah, they're... I mean, and in my own life, uh, my... my uh, uh, someone I care about told me about um, their worship leader was... Uh, well, they, they had moved on to another job, but since then, it's been kind of... It's kind of come out that what this worship leader who was a very kind person to the general congregation and to the people, but apparently he would at rehearsals would shout at his band. And I, I told, I told my band that this morning, uh, my, my worship band, I was like, I can't imagine that. Cause like when I think of like my responsibility as a pastor, I think of my primary shepherding responsibility as a pastor of music when it comes to worship on Sunday morning, my primary responsibility is not actually to the congregation, but to my band. I've always thought that, like, you are my first flock. Mm. And, and so it's like, it blows my mind. But why? 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 Because my attitude in that is I am standing shoulder to shoulder with this team going to war for the souls of the congregation. We are fellow warriors. When we stand up there on that stage, I'm not, we're not entertainers. We are warriors. We're going to war with six string guitars and with drumsticks and pianos for the souls of our people. And so I am going to be, we are going to be standing side to side. We, there needs to be trust and mutual love between fellow warriors. Um, I am not going up there and standing there and it's not about making me look good. This is a, a pass. I'm convinced that pastors who are able to be pugilists publicly are the most kind shepherds privately. And it is not on accident. This was the intention, a loving pastor. You can tell they are an actually loving pastor by the way they tear wolves to shreds. David was not a good shepherd. When he kindly shoot off the bears. Oh, oh, they got one. They got one sheep. Okay, but you know what? Shoo, I don't want to. I don't want to hurt you, bear. He was a caring shepherd. When he ripped that thing to shreds. When he beat it down with stones from his sling. Cut it to pieces. Ripped it apart with his bare hands. That is when he was a loving shepherd to his sheep when he made sure that bear didn't come back. Right. A 
pastor who loves his, she his sheep needs to be a pugilist to the world to fight on their behalf. That's love. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So. <laughs> I don't remember how we got here, by the way. But it was, a, it was a great, it was a, it, I can tell it was a great road. I just, I think, you know, I, I think it came back from the fact that I don't think inerrancy is the battle as it's the battle we're, we're, we're fighting today. Yeah. Yeah. We need to, the battles for the mind, the battles for the shepherd, the pastor as scholar, um, evangelicalism as an intellectually rigorous theology. Um, so, so for yeah. your, for your homework, go watch the entire, uh, evangelical downgrade playlist which i believe this is a part of um but specifically yeah. um specifically they care how much we know and yeah. wimpy jesus that would be the other one yes i yes. think that is <laughs> um, if i remember right i'll put those in the, if i remember right, i'll put them in the description yeah i think but, absolutely absolutely and there wasn't um, a good point for me to put this in so I will yeah. I will now say I did a little bit of research and and the closest hotel I could find with a conference center to Ligonier's headquarters um <laughs> is in a play is is the the Lake Mary Marriott. So it is. so I think I think the the Lake Mary statement there on is. whatever is, is is because it will it will confuse and piss off the papists, and that's really. Ah, ah, ah. Although I think you know the Sanford statement. You know, if they wanted to have it Sanford. on campus, they could do the Sanford da, statement. Da, 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 da. <laughs> I actually thought of a th of a thought that I, I I had while reading that I wanted to just I'm just going to state it and drop it. Um, okay. It's interesting though what he talks about how infallibility and inerrancy wasn't actually a debate until the liberals because even the catholics in the oh, debate yeah. over scripture they affirmed its inerrancy and its infallibility they didn't affirm its sufficiency and that's what sola scriptura really was was about the sufficiency of scripture they thought we needed more than one anyway uh Oh, <laughs> uh, and Patrick, he really wants this conference to take place in Western Michigan, and he thinks the cold will keep the protesters out. Okay, well, we can make the West, but the West Michigan that, state. That's kind of work. Um, I, I, so, so Yellowknife, uh, Northwest Territories would also be uh, um, uh, <laughs> um, but uh, uh, if if we really, I mean, if we really want to. Uh, make sure and then frozen chosen would never have been more true uh but uh so but the southern baptists did this one year um in phoenix had they had a convention i can't remember but it was a convention that was supposed to have a bunch of protesters but they had it in phoenix in july um and the hotel and conference center didn't allow the protesters inside so the Southern Baptist Convention had protesters at six in the morning and at 11 at night and not in between. <laughs> um, yep. Because, 
<laughs> uh, because if they if they didn't want to peel protesters like worms off the sidewalk, um, then, then they weren't going to be out there. Um, oh, yeah, no, not at Calvin College. Uh, nope, no, 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 hard no, hard no, hard no. <laughs> um, taking 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 too much of a chance that there may truly be something in the water. Um, Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, we can close the book on the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy. Uh, we'll maybe take up the hermeneutics and other stuff here and there uh, in bonus episodes moving forward. Um, but we're going to call it for the statement. And also, I'm going to say we are largely have a positive view of the yeah. article. The, the TVC I, article. I was surprised. And I thought I thought this one might take a turn too, because this was the one mm -hmm. where he was adding one. Uh, and yeah. no, actually, good TGC. We'll admit it. Good yeah. TGC this time. Good TGC. Um when uh, is Paul Carter gonna repent? But this was good <laughs> TGC. <laughs> yeah. Uh but that means we better get studying because we're coming back to the book of revelation yeah. next week. We are making our grand return to the book of revelation. Uh, the first week of April, just in time for Easter and also just in time for, for, uh, just this last week. Um, the, uh, uh, renewing your mind. Speaking of like um, had their excerpts from the teachings of, um, Oh shoot! Um, uh, Godfrey, uh, Robert Godfrey's teaching oh, on God. Revelation, and he went over chapters okay. four and five on the first two days. And so, uh, if you want, if you want a preview, uh, go to go to legator.com, find Renewing Your Mind, um, the episode for I believe it'd be uh, that'd be I'm trying to do the math in my head, uh, March twenty two, March twenty second, uh, and twenty third. Those would be the episodes, I believe. Um, so yeah. So that's your, your your assignment for next week, um, and uh, and then this we're going to get back our, into it. Our second coming to the Book of Revelation. That's right. Um, it's going to be very different this time. A year um, later, it's <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to be that much different. <laughs> time between the times was uh, is, is fulfilled. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, and we'll probably, but in the spirit of that, we'll probably do a quick oh, review. Um, but, we did a um, we did a big long church age between <laughs> parentheses, if you will. Yeah. Oh, it hurts. <laughs> Gang really went dispensationalist. <laughs> Oh, but in the meantime, <laughs> uh, engraft yourself to our uh, vine by going to buymeacoffee.com slash flyover. And uh, uh, for a dollar a month, of course, you can you can be part of our Discord server. You can be part of the live stream and hear the live stream ahead before everyone else gets to it, as well as reading the amazing comments by our unofficial producer, Patrick. And uh, mm -hmm. um. And, and of course, then you get, like I said, you're part of our secret discord server where we have lots of great conversations from the hilarious to the uh, deep and serious. And um, also you get to hear um, 
you know, when we're having a bad day and we have to rant to someone, we will do that on our discord server as well. And, um, and of course, sort of, if that, we don't sneak it into preambling and then cut it out as a separate yeah. episode that, yeah. that happens too. <laughs> and, and, so, and short of that, of course, if you just want to share this episode, um, uh, <laughs> nope only 665 minutes between the episodes so close <laughs> wouldn't that be great uh but of course short of of financial support you can neighbor share the episode what's that the neighbor of the beast <laughs> the beast the neighbor of the beast um so you can share this episode uh, share this episode tell a friend uh like it rate it subscribe follow all that good stuff um and um uh leave a comment in in our on on the episode if you're watching on on uh youtube or send us an email anarchist bible say at gmail.com unless um what you're trying to do is uh um, try and woo us to have our Chicago Statement conference in your backwater town, in which case you can send the email to <coughs> woo at kalamazoo.edu. <laughs> at kalamazoo.edu. Well done. Oh, the poetry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> And of course, most of all, most importantly of all, join us again next week when we take Anarchy to Church here on the Anarchist Bible Study. Grace and peace. Grace and peace.